Good morning, church family. How are you today? So great to see you. I apologize that we're just a dull, dead, boring church with nothing going on. I mean, you know, just nothing happening around here. There are so many things going on. Make sure you look at your program. A couple of other things. Uh, in your program, you're going to find a little bitty car, and you're just going to find two that look just like this. Easter is rapidly coming upon us. And Easter is the one time of year with a lot of people who normally don't go to church or looking for a church to go to. Why not invite them to come to New Hope with you? And it's going to be a great, great service and a great follow-up. In fact, I hope every Sunday you would invite some friends to be, come with you, but especially on Easter. So what we're asking you to do is on the back, if you want to write down some names of friends that you're praying for leading up to Easter, there's two of these cards in your program. If you keep one and drop one in the offering basket, we're going to join you. Our staff will join you in praying with you and with your friends on that. So Easter right around the corner on that. Also, too, you may have noticed when you walked up in the courtyard, there was a second canopy set up. We are working, partnering with Thrivent Financial. They're the ones that recently helped us redo our, our mortgage loan here. And when we start construction on phase two, uh, end of this year, you're going to be hearing more and more about that in the upcoming months. But they're the ones we'll be working with, hopefully, to get our, secure our loan for our complete our campus and so forth, but they also offer us financial classes. Uh, these are classes that are of no cost to you. They're not trying to sell things. That's a big, big deal for us, but they're trying to give you information to help you financially on that. We have the first one of these events coming up, not next Friday, but the fr uh, Friday after that on March 17th, uh, and it is related to financial planning, something every one of us could use. So absolutely free. We have childcare available as well. So just mark that down on your calendar, and we'll have some more inserts and flyers for you uh, next week. But that is coming up on February, or rather March 17th. And stop by the, the canopy out there and get to know these guys. They're there to help us, and we're looking forward to that partnership together with them. I think all of us would agree that we live in a world that technologically is going at an incredible speed. Uh, have you kind of felt like you go buy some new phone, you buy a new computer, a new laptop, you carry it home, about the time you get it unpacked and all set up, it's already out of date? You know, the new model has now just kind of come out. I mean, our technology is just going off the charts with things that are, are happening so rapidly around us. And a lot of that has to do with one guy in particular, this guy right here. Who is that? That is Steve Jobs, who for years and years was kind of the, the driving force of Apple. Uh, he's, as we, most of you know, has passed away, but uh, in, his influence still lives on in our society and our culture. He had a very unusual knack of pushing back if an engineer or an expert told him that something that he wanted was impossible. He would push back against that. And because he forced people around him to find a way somehow, some way, Apple in particular created products that the expert said, you can't do that, that can't exist. And it changes and it's changed the way you and I live our everyday life today. Uh, one thing in particular that uh, I read a story about him that I thought was pretty interesting. Back on January the 9th, 2007, at the Macworld convention, Steve Jobs got, got up at that convention and he said, this year, in, in 2007, we are coming out and he introduced the iPhone. Hadn't even been made yet, but he introduced the concept of the iPhone there. Now, they had worked, he, his team had worked, and they had mastered new plastic, new metals for computers and, and, and production on the iPhone and so forth like that. But one thing that he really began to focus on was the glass aspect of your iPhone type of thing. And just before the release of the new iPhone back in 2007, he went to his lead designer and he said this, stop production. I, I'm not happy with the glass. I'm not happy with it yet. 
And he felt like the, a plastic, which they originally had designed this plastic cover for your iPhone. He thought that looked cheap and it just, just not the surface that he wanted. So he decided that he needed to find a durable and a scratch resistant glass to cover the front of an iPhone. But there was a problem with that. That kind of glass did not even exist at that time. There was no glass like that and he needed it fast. He had a friend that suggested that he call this man right here. His name is Wendell Weeks. He was the CEO and I guess still is the CEO of Corning Glass. Now you can imagine trying to get two high-powered uh, executives together like this. It proved to be a little bit of an adventure. Steve Jobs called Corning's main switchboard. He asked to speak to Weeks. An assistant told him, you just fax in your request to Mr. Weeks. To which Steve Jobs replied, I'm Steve Jobs. Do you know who I am type of a thing? Put me through. When she refused, he complained to the mutual friend that kind of got him connected in the first place. The friend told Weeks about what had happened, who then called the Apple switchboard and asked to be connected to Steve. Of course, they wouldn't put him through either. All right, that just didn't happen. And when he heard, when, when Steve Jobs heard that story, he immediately liked this Wendell Weeks who he had never even met. So they finally arranged a meeting for Steve to explain to him exactly what kind of glass he needed. And as their conversation, here's some, some excerpts from their conversation. Weeks said this. He said, in the 1960s, and by the way, here's a picture of those two guys together right here. I believe we have that. There they are. There they are, two, the two guys collaborating together on that. In the 1960s, Weeks said, we developed a type of process that created something we called gorilla glass. Gorilla glass. Fine, Steve Jobs said. In six months, I want enough of it to make one million iPhones. <laughs> I'm sorry, Weeks said. He, he knew the request was impossible. There's no way. He says, we actually haven't made it yet. We've never even made it. We don't even have a factory to make it. Steve Jobs looked at him in the eye and he said this, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You can do this. You can do it. And Weeks was kind of looking at him with this incredulous look like, man, didn't I just tell you it was impossible? This can't be done. And Steve Jobs fixed this, uh, an unblinking stare on Wendell Weeks and he said this, get your mind around it. You can do this. Weeks called in his best scientists and his engineers. He placed a call to a manufacturing plant in Kentucky that was making corning glass for LCD screens. And he said this, start the process now and make Gorilla Glass. Within six months... A glass that had never been created or used was the glass in six million iPhones that were released on June 29, 2007. You read Steve Jobs' autobiography, you see the movie that's out. And it's inspiring the kind of faith this guy had to do impossible things. Now there's one thing very troubling about the Steve Jobs story to me. Very troubling. If you haven't already done so, look inside your program, take your message outline today. Here's the first filling of the blank on your message outline. Here's what's so troubling to me about the Steve Jobs story and many stories like that. The secular world's expectation for what could be possible seems much higher than that of people living in the Christian world. That's troubling. You see, we used to be the ones, we as Christians, we're the ones, believers in Jesus Christ and Almighty God, we're the ones who used to believe that the impossible could be done through our God that we follow. 
But now it seems like secular business community, they started believing the impossible things are possible. At the very same time, the Christian community, we as Christians as a whole, have stopped believing in the impossible. That's troubling. The secular world has discovered the power of raising their expectations. At the same time, Christians, the Christian world, if you would, we've lowered ours. Maybe, just maybe, that's why Apple is flourishing today and the Christian church as a whole is declining in our country. Maybe that has something to do with it. Look at the fill in the blank on your message outline. Expectations matter. Expectations matter. Great people, great companies, great churches expect more from life and usually they get it. Now, why is this so important to hope? Look at this next statement. If you get nothing else out of the message, take this home with you and ponder upon it. Where there is no faith in the future, there's no power in the present. Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Henry Ford, the founder of Ford Motor Company, said this, whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. And he's right. Jesus Christ put it this way, with God, all things are possible. Everything is possible for him who believes. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. If you believe, Jesus said, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. The fill in the blank goes like this. Your hope level only rises when your expectations are elevated. When your expectations are elevated. If you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we're on a new message series entitled the HQ Quotient, the Hope Quotient. And we have found that people today desperately need hope. I have been absolutely floored by the response to this, this material, which I wish I could say is mine. You, you do know that everything I share, you, some of you think, you come up with that? No, I don't come. No, I'm, I beg, borrow, steal from anybody, folks. If it helps me, it will help you. I'm just one beggar sharing another beggar where to find bread, okay? I'm passing it along. But this is fantastic material, and I have been so overwhelmed by people coming and saying, I can't believe you talked. I needed that today. I needed that. We have discovered that people need hope. Marriages need hope. I talk to couples and it's like, your marriage needs hope, doesn't it? People who are looking for jobs or better jobs, they need hope. Students need hope that they could get into college and they could make it through college. We as followers of Jesus Christ, Christ followers, we need hope that we can live out our Christian faith, our walk with God. And what we've discovered in this series already is that hope is something that can be learned. It is actually something that you and I can develop in our life. And we have been looking at seven faith or rather hope building factors that when they combine together, put them all together, you and I grow and we can thrive in a very powerful, powerful way. And last week we looked at the very first of these seven factors. And each week we're looking at one factor at a time each week. So I hope you'll continue to be with us for the series. So the fa first factor last week was recharge your batteries. Recharge your batteries. If you miss that message, you can go online and listen to it. You can pull down the message outline as well. Today, the second factor we're going to be looking at is this. If we're going to raise our hope level, we have to raise our expectations. We have to raise our expectations. And we're going to look at five attitudes and actions that will help you, that will help me become a person who expects great things. So let's jump in there. Five traits that will evaluate or elevate rather your expectations. Trait number one, believe impossible things are actually possible. Believe impossible things are possible. Most every one of us have heard somebody say something like this, you get what you deserve. You get what you deserve. That's not always true. 
It's true sometimes, but it's not always true. Look at this next fill in the blank. You don't get what you deserve. Sometimes you get what you expect. You get what you expect. Self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways, I guess, on that. One of the great stories in the Bible that we're going to look at this morning is the story of David and Goliath, a story that most of you are somewhat familiar with, and we're going to look at it, but I just want you to, to know, and we'll look at the story in just a moment, but look at this next fill in the blank. It was David's expectation that led to actions, that led to actions that triggered God doing a miracle, that blessed him, but blessed his whole nation. And we just see this on just a very quick snapshot here. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 36 and 37. David, as he's having a conversation with the king of the country, and if you're not familiar with the story, David and Goliath, we, we hear about this. It was a young teenage boy who went and fought a giant Philistine warrior and overwhelming odds against him type of a thing. And so when he said he would fight this warrior because nobody else in the army would, he was brought before the king, and the king says, you're just a teenage boy. What do you think? Why do you think you can do this? And here's what he said. He was a shepherd by trade. He was a shepherd boy. He said, I have killed lions and bears defending my sheep. That's what he's saying. I've killed wild animals before, and I will do the same thing to this heathen Philistine who has defiled, defied the army of the living God. And then notice this statement. Here's his expectation. The Lord has saved me from lions and bears, and he will save me from this Philistine. He wasn't depending on himself to win the battle. His expectation was that God would win the battle through him. Now look at this next fill in the blank. I got danger warning. Here it is. Do not, whatever you do, do not buy into this little acronym. Who knows what TWNC means? TWNC. Anybody got, anybody got They knew first service because they put the answer on the screen. So let's do the same thing this service. And here it is right here. Here's what it means. Things will never change. Do not, do not buy into that. Things will never change. This is a toxic, this is an incredibly dangerous thought process. It has the power to destroy your marriage, destroy your friendships, destroy your career. Those four words, things will never change. They replace confidence with cynicism. It replaces high hopes with depression and despair. It will blind people to the possibility that God may have better days ahead for you and for me. It is so powerful, those four words, that things will never change. It can handcuff the hands of God. What? It can handcuff the hands of God. Now, I asked this first service, and, and they looked at me like I was going crazy. I'm going to try one more time. Was there not a supermarket chain in Southern California that one of their slogans, I thought her name was Bonnie somebody, was their brand name. Bonnie somebody, local girl makes good. I am dreaming things. I am in, I'm losing what little mind I have left. I swear I saw that somewhere. But anyway, there, here's my point. When it came to Jesus, there wasn't a billboard as you entered his hometown of Nazareth that says, Jesus Christ, local boy makes good. In fact, they didn't even believe in him. Look at this incredible verse in Matthew chapter 13, verse 58. It says, and he, Jesus, did not do many miracles there. Where? In his own hometown. Why? Because of their unbelief. They just looked at Jesus. Isn't that Mary and Joseph's boy? He's just one of us. What, what was he so special about him? And because of their unbelief, it limited the power of God in their lives. You know, unfortunately, we as Christians are becoming less and less like Steve Jobs. <laughs> and we're becoming more like most car companies. I don't know if you've ever been to a car, tra a car trade show or you've seen pictures in magazines of prototypes of cars you're looking to produce. And some of those cars you look at and you go like, whoa, wow, I can't wait to see that. That looks so neat. And here's the deal. You never see it. 
You never see it. And you know why you never see it? Because once they develop these prototypes and they go to start looking to produce them, the engineers get together and say, we can't do that. You can't do that. We can't produce that car. You get the, the you know, your, your, uh, your financial team together and they said, that costs a gazillion. We can't do that. It's economic. It's not feasible. And so all these cool pictures and designs are suddenly shot down with the idea it can't be done. You and I must believe the impossible. You must believe in the impossible because so often you and I get what we expect. Here's the trait number two. Believe that God has better days ahead. Believe that God has better days ahead. Back in the late 1940s in Maine, there was a river. I love this river's name. It's called the Dead River. <laughs> what a great name for a river. The Dead River in Maine. They were going to dam it up. A power company was going to dam it up to produce electricity. And what was going to happen is they were, it was going to flood the valley. And there was a small little town that would be submerged. It was going to be covered with the water once the dam was built. And so the utility company sent representatives around. They went door to door in this little bitty town and they told them what was happening. We're building this big dam at the other end of the valley. It's going to flood this whole area. This is going to be a lake. Your, your house is going underwater. So here's what the deal is. We're going to buy your property from you. We're going to give you fair value for that. You can live in it free until the waters come. And that could be two or three years it would take to build the dam. And so that's what, that's what happened. But obviously when the waters come, you've got to move type of a thing. About a year after the utility company had bought all of the properties there, a rider, a rider revisited his family's home. He grew up in this little town. So he went back to visit this little town that, was now, that now had an expiration date. You know, a certain time the waters are coming on that. Many of the residents had moved, but many of them had not moved. And he saw a remarkable change in his town. Here's what he saw. He said, what was once a charming neighborhood of tidy houses with fenced yards had become a dilapidated ghost town. Why repair a broken down fence when it's going to be knocked over by a wave or some water anyway? Why fix a window or a pothole? Why try to be neighborly if everyone is moving away? And then this writer penned these words. You've already written this down once. It's so powerful. I want you to write it in again. Here's your next fill in the blank right here. Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Fill in the blank goes like this. People with high HQs expect positive things to happen. And then notice this next one. And they work to make those things happen. This is not some, you know, Pollyanna sit back. Oh, everything's going to be good and great. And just sit there and just think it's going to magically happen. No, you and I put feet to our prayers. We work to make these things happen. They, these people with high HQs, they expect to see good things instead of fearing imminent disaster. No faith, no power. Here's the third trait. Realize the power of perspective. Realize the power of perspective. This is a letter that was written by a young girl who had moved away to go to college. This was before we had mobile phones, obviously. Here's her letter to her mom and dad. She said, Dear mom and dad, it's now been three months since I left for college. I am sorry for my thoughtlessness in not writ having written before. I will bring you up to date, but before you read on, you better sit down, okay? I'm getting along pretty well now. The skull fracture and the concussion I got when I jumped out of my apartment window when it caught fire after my arrival here is pretty well healed. I only spent two weeks in the hospital and now I can almost see normally and only get those sick headaches once a day. Fortunately, the fire and my jump were witnessed by Roger, an attendant at the gas station across the street. 
He was the one who called the fire department. He also visited me in the hospital. And since I had nowhere to live, he was kind enough to invite me to share his apartment with him. He is a very fine man and we are planning to get married. We haven't set the date yet, but it will be before my pregnancy begins to show. His divorce is final now and he shares custody of his three children. The reason for the delay in our marriage is that Roger has a minor infection that prevents us from passing our premarital blood test and I, was, I carelessly caught it from him. This will soon clear up with the penicillin injections I am taking daily. Now that I have brought you up to date, I want to tell you that there was no fire. I did not have a concussion or skull fracture. I was not in the hospital. I am not pregnant. I am not engaged. I do not have syphilis. There is no divorced man in my life. However, however, I do have a D in art and an F in biology and I need $200. I wanted you to see these marks in their proper perspective. That's the power of proper perspective right there, folks. I mean, hey, let's just all go home. Look at this fill in the blank. Most of us are waiting on a change of circumstances. We're waiting for our circumstances to change, but what we really need is a change in our perspective. We need a change in our perspective. You see, often it's not low circumstances that make us lose hope. It is low expectations. Anybody here today, be loud and proud if you are, but anybody here today, you are a Green Bay Packer fan. Let me see it. Oh, yeah, Jessica. All right, all right. Here we go. Well, now, this is old school Green Bay Packers. This is way before Jessica was even born right there. But anyway, her grandparents could tell her this story on that. Back in the 40s and 50s, the Green Bay Packers were atrocious. They were the worst team in the National Football League. For 11 years, 11 years, they had losing records. They won only 28% of their games. You thought the Chargers were bad. I mean, these guys were really bad back in the day. And they, so that means, you know, for every 10 games they played, they lost seven of those 10 games. In 1958, they had the worst, the most embarrassing season in the history of Green Bay Packer football. They won one game and they lost 10. 1958. But all that was about to change because on February the 2nd, 1959, they hired this man, Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi became the head coach of Green, the Green Bay Packers. Not only was he head coach, he was the leader of the Green Bay Packers. And in 1959, his first year, they experienced their first winning season in more than a decade. This rookie head coach was named the coach of the year. And for the next nine years, there were nine winning seasons. Now they were winning 70% of their games instead of losing 70% of their games. In those, that, those next nine years, they won five national championships and the first two Super Bowls. What happened? What happened? What turned a losing team with 11 years of failure into the most winning team nine years in a row? What took a group of discouraged, dispirited athletes and turned them into champions? What changed everything for the Green Bay Packers? It was a very simple answer. One person arrived and brought with him a completely different perspective and higher expectations. That's what happened. You and I see this same principle in the Bible. We, about three months ago, we did a whole message series looking at some of the history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. And we talked about how around 600 B.C., because they had wandered so far away from God, God allowed the Babylonians, the world empire of that time in 600 B.C., around that, to attack and defeat 
the Hebrew people, and most of the people were taken away back to Babylonia as slaves where they stayed. They were there for 70 years, 70 years, and then a new world power came into being, led the Persians, led by King Cyrus. After Cyrus got on into power, he said, guys, listen, Jewish people, you want to go back to your homeland? I'll let you go. And a lot, several thousands, many thousands went back. They were first led by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar who went back and he tried to rebuild the temple. Because when the Babylonians left, they destroyed everything, knocked everything down. There was not a house standing. They destroyed the city walls. The temple was knocked down. It was all rubble. So he went back and he led a charge to try to rebuild the temple. It just took them 46 years to rebuild the temple. And when they had rebuilt the temple, the people who had heard their grandparents talk about the grandeur and the beauty of the temple, when they saw this temple they had built, the Bible says they wept. Because it was so second rate compared to what the original temple was. But they had rebuilt that. But the morale was low. 92 years later in 444 BC, a man named Nehemiah left Susa in Persia, the Persian capital. And he came back to Jerusalem. His goal was to rebuild the city wall. Because without a city wall, you were wide open to the attacks of anybody around you. It was not a good way to live, so to speak. When Nehemiah showed up, this is what the city scorecard looked like. It looked kind of like this. Years since the city wall was destroyed, 92. Years the people were stuck there, 92. Years of failure, 92. Years of broken dreams, 92. These people lived what we might call the four L's. Fear, failure, frustration, and fatigue. And then the fill in the blank goes like this. Nehemiah arrived with a perspective not of what had been, but what could become. And after Nehemiah got to Jerusalem, 52 days later, here's the new scorecard in the city. It looked like this. The number of days to rebuild the wall, 52, not years, days, 52, done, game over. What changed? What changed? 92 years of frustration, 52 days later, it's gone. What happened? One guy arrived with raised expectation and the city was forever changed. When you, when you, when you are the person who arrives on the scene with the right perspective and higher expectations because of you and God working through you, everything can change. And there can be hope. Trait number four. Replace fear with faith. Replace fear with faith. Again, one of the clearest examples of this is the story of David and Goliath. Just to give you a little backfill on this this story, it's the story of a young Hebrew shepherd boy who defeated a giant Philistine warrior with a slingshot and some smooth stones. The people expected nothing but defeat. David expected nothing but victory. The people thought Goliath was too big to beat. David thought he was too big to miss. The people of Israel were filled with expectations, were not filled with expectations. They were filled with fear. And here's kind of a working definition somebody gave of fear. It's anonymous, but I like the definition. Fear is the dark room where negatives developed. And in the story, we're going to look at it very quickly here. Israel, the nation of Israel, allowed four destructive steps that were centered around fear to send it shivering and hiding, if you would, on that. In this particular story, 
you have the nation of Israel. And then to the west, you had the Philistines. They were neighboring countries. They were constantly at war with each other. And on this particular occasion, they made their camps. The Philistines on one side of a valley, the valley in between. On the other side, the Israelites made their camp. And every day the Bible would say they would get their warriors out. They would go in their battle formation and they would wait for one or the other to make the move to have a big fight inside the valley. But the Philistines had a giant warrior, famous warrior. His name was Goliath. How tall was Goliath? He was over nine feet tall. How tall is nine feet tall? Any odd takers here who you're going to be betting on, you know, type of thing. Nine feet tall, plus nine foot. And he would come out every day and he would stand on one side of the valley and he would shout out to the Israelites and he'd say, hey, still a lot of people losing their lives. I got a better plan. You send out your best man. Come fight me. Whoever wins, the other, two, other, other country, losing country serves the other one. No takers. Imagine. Nobody would come out day after day. They had, they had four actions that they took as a nation that caused them to re retreat into fear. Destructive patterns, if you would. Here they are. Four destructive steps that you and I can do. take the same steps today that they did that lead us to fear. Here they are. Number one, focus only on the problem. Focus only on the problem. This story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you, and I encourage you this week, go home and read it. But it says, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. So their focus was on the nine-foot-tall giant. Number two, expect to be defeated. Expect to be defeated. It's certainly going to lead to fear. Verse 11, it says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, who was the king of the country, and all the Israelites were dismayed, and they were what? They were terrified. They were terrified. So expect to be defeated. Number three, there was an attitude of self-protection. An attitude of self-protection. Verse 23 and 24. As he, David, was talking with him, he was talking uh, with some of the other soldiers there. And I'll, I'll give you that backfield of that story in just a second. Goliath came forward and he challenged the Israelites as he had done before. So David all of a sudden hears this challenge. And David, and David heard him. And then he said this, that when the, Israelites, when the Israelites saw Goliath, they ran away in terror. Again, it's a self-protection attitude. And then finally, number four, if you want to have, take a destructive step and surround your life with fear, then run from the problem. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. They ran away in terror. David was told by his dad, his three older brothers... There were eight boys in the family. His three older brothers were in the Israelite army. And so his father told him, he was a shepherd. He was tending some sheep outside of the family home. Dad called him in and said, listen, don't you take these provisions to your brothers at the battlefront. Give them this food and stuff. Get report, come back. So he goes, and when he goes, he hits at the right time that Goliath is there giving his challenge to the Israelites' army. So he hears this nine-foot guy up there challenging the Israelite army. So he's saying, well, why isn't anybody fighting him? This guy's making fun of our God. And the soldiers say, well, yeah, we're not going to go fight him. And he said, I'll fight him. And his brother came. I read you the verse a minute ago and just got, jumped all over him. What are you doing here, you punk kid? Get back to your sheep. Get out of here type of thing. But some other soldiers heard him and they brought him before the king. And the king said, what do you mean you want to fight? You can't, you're just a teenage boy. He says, listen, 
Remember I told you, you know, I, as a shepherd boy, I killed these lions and these bears. God did that through me. God will use me to kill this guy too. I'll fight him. And so the king said, well, you got to be properly prepared. So he put this armor all over him. And David goes out to fight Goliath. You know, he's going to go out and find this armor. And David said, I can't do this. So he walks away from the king and he says, I'm just going to carry my slingshot. And he stopped by a stream and he got five rocks. And off he goes to fight Goliath. Let's see what happened. David took five positive steps, five positive actions that instead of creating fear in his life, actually created faith in his life. So let's very quickly look at those five steps that he took, five actions he took. Number one, focus on God. These are the same steps you and I need to take. We need to focus on God. The people focused on the problem. He focused on God. Verse 26, it says that David said, who is this heathen Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? He was focusing on God, not the giant. Number two, anticipate God's help. Anticipate God's help on that. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all all of you into our hands. So he wasn't going to go out like, hey, I'm going to take him on. I'm going to take him out. No, this is God's going to do this. God is going to do this. The third thing that he did that we need to do is this, insist on being involved. Insist on being involved. Here's the the situation where Elab, David's oldest brother, heard David talking to the man. He became angry with David and he said, what are you doing here? Who's taking care of those sheep of yours out there in the wilderness? But when he got before King Saul, David said this, Your majesty, no one should be afraid of this Philistine. I will go and I will fight him. And then the fourth step that he took that we need to take is take time to prepare. Take time to prepare. Saul put his armor on David. David said, I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and he put them in his shepherd bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Now, guys, I know I got the pictures way off base. So Robert, can you help me out here? This is kind of a picture of what it looked like, the artist's rendering of David and Goliath. That's kind of a picture of it. Now, if it was modern day terms, it would kind of look more like this. <laughs> Who are you going to bet on right there? I mean, that's, that's kind of the depiction, modern day depiction of that. Here's the fifth thing that David did and we need to do. Have an impact on those around you. David believed that he would have an impact on those around him. The scripture tells us this, that when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they turned and they ran. After David, when he went out to fight Goliath, Goliath comes charging at him. David begins to run towards Goliath. He stops. He takes out one of the rocks in his slingshot. He whips this thing around. He lets that rock go. That rock catches Goliath right between the eye. It stuns him. It knocks him out, so to speak. He falls on the ground. David runs to Goliath, takes his own sword, Goliath's own sword, which is a humongous sword, and he severed his head. Touchdown. Game over. And then notice what the, what the scripture says happened after that. Under number five, it says, when the Philistines saw that their, cat, their champion was dead, they turned and ran. And the men of Israel and Judah shouted and chased the Philistines all the way to the entrance of the city of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Have an impact on those around you. Whatever your need is today, God's greater. Whatever you are going through, God is bigger. 
Whatever your weakness, God is stronger. You and I must raise our expectations of what God can do in our lives and through our lives. And when we begin to do that and we move forward with faith, we will begin to despair the fear that is in our life. Here's the fifth and final trait. Replace what if, what if with why not. What if with why not. These are some famous quotes. You'll get a chuckle out of some of these. Look at this first one. While theoretically and technically television may be feasible, commercially and financially, it's an impossibility. A development in which we need to waste little time of dreaming. This is from the guy who invented a tube that was kind of a precursor to making TVs work. So that didn't quite work out so well for that prediction, did it? On that, here's another one. Look at this one. I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. This is the chairman of the board of IBM back in 1943. His name is Watson. I wonder that supercomputer named Watson, I wonder if they named it after him just to mock him. I, you know, I don't know type of thing, maybe. Look at this. Name. This is a, from a war strategist here back in World War I, uh, a famed military strategist. Airplanes are interesting toys but of no military value. Men and women in their services, aren't you glad they, they didn't listen to that guy? Okay, here's another one. I love this one. With over 50 foreign cars already on sale here, the Japanese auto industry isn't likely to carve out a big slice of the U.S. market. Business Week 1958. Okay, oh, great on that. How about this one? Look at this. This is a stock market. This is before the, the great stock market crash of 1929. This uh, economist says stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. And it was just like a week later that the stock market crash happened. When the stock market, he says, reached a permanently high plateau, the stock market when it crashed was at 305. Friday, it closed at over 2,100, 21,000 rather. So I don't think it reached a permanently high plateau back in 19. I, I think we kind of topped that just a little bit. How about you? And then this is my favorite one. We don't think the Beatles will do anything in their market, in the U.S. market. Guitar groups are on their way out. Okay, so you just all out there. Look at this fill in the blank. Well, before you look at the fill in the blank, let me, let me share with you this. One final story. Look at this man right here. Check out the picture of this guy. Look at his hands. This man was, was born with deformity in his hands and in his feet. You can see his hands. On one hand, he has two fingers. On the other one, he has a, a, just a, a one on that. His name is Roger Crawford. He was born with, again, four shortened limbs on that. In fact, one of his legs eventually had to be amputated, so he had a prosthetic leg on one Everybody except his parents told him, you know, Roger, you can't do this. Roger, you can't do that. You can't do these types of things. Roger decided he wanted to learn how to play tennis. How could that guy play tennis? Well, here's a picture of Roger right here playing tennis. You'll notice his left leg is a, has the prosthesis on it. And look at that. Here's another picture of him a little bit closer up. There he is. And you can see they've kind of made this device to help him hold the tennis racket. Here's one more shot that shows you the actual device. That one finger he was able to put through this device to hold that tennis racket. Well, he became a pretty good tennis player. Back when he was in college, he became an NCAA champion. An NCAA champion. He went on to become a U.S. tennis professional associate athlete. Sports Illustrated called him one of the most accomplished, physically challenged athletes in the world. What an incredible story. He travels all over the world as a motivational, inspirational speaking, talking to help people understand, don't buy into I can't, look at more of what I can do, especially with God's help. He's a very committed Christian as well. 
Imagine if he had listened to all those voices in his life as he was growing up. You know, you know Roger, what if he'd listened to the inside, right? if he'd only been born with normal legs and normal arms and you could all do all these things. He didn't have a pity party for himself. What if he listened to all those people who said, you know, you have to be realistic. Roger, you can't do that. Imagine if he had listened to them, but he didn't. He was actually invited by the United States government to Washington, D.C. to the Walter Reed Memorial Hospital. And he was to, uh, asked to walk through the wards there uh, where soldiers had had limbs, lost limbs because of war. And he was walking through there, and he says, one of the most unbelievably depressing things I'd ever done. He says, one by one, I went to one bed after another, saw the devastating results of war. And then he walked up to a young man who was lying on his back. He was unable to move. And when he walked up, Roger said, how are you doing? And the guy, he said, had this big smile on his face. And they began a conversation. Turns out this young man was a very committed Christian, and as they were talking, the, the young man said to Roger, he looked and he, he kind of finally noticed. He says, hey, you don't have normal arms either. And he said this, how can I pray for you? This is the patient talking to Roger. How can I pray for you? And Roger just said he was totally blown away just by this man's perspective on life. And after they talked a little while longer, the soldier looked at him. He says, you know what? He says, I'm going to walk again just like you. And finally, Roger just said, what's your secret, man? I mean, everybody here is devastated. They're depressed. And you actually have hope. And here's what the young man said to him. I am flat on my back, the young soldier said. So the only thing I can do is look up. And Roger said to him, you know what? If you can look up, you can get up. And you know that same principle is true for you and me today. Last fill in the blank on your message outline. If you and I will learn to raise our expectations, if we will begin to look up, God will help us get up. And our expectations will rise. Our hope will begin to soar. Because when you look up, we can get up. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father, thank you so much for hope. Thank you so much for hope. Every day of our lives, we need the hope that you can give to us. And I would especially lift up anyone here this morning who is going through a dark time in their lives who really, really needs hope, that they would be able to take some of the principles that we've looked at this morning, begin to apply them to their lives, and God, that you would begin to raise their hope level by raising their expectations. Thank you that you are a God who does the impossible, that you are not limited by the things that we are limited by. Help us learn to trust you to work in our lives, to work through our lives. And in that process, God, would you give us a hope that will sustain us, not only through you know, the good times we have, but especially that would sustain us through the difficult times that we all encounter from time to time. Give us that faith that only you can give. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.